Welcome to the One More Turn Season 6 Commentary. I'm series creator and voice of Hudson, Daniel Thank You Quick, and I am joined by Kenneth Albinus, the voice of Man, which is of course your most important title. Of course. Even though it's not technically accurate. And returning to us for Season 6, the voice actor for Carson, it's Scott Alphashardur. Hello everyone. Season 6, as we know, is a little bit different, and not because it is the series' last, and there are lots of things related to the series that we're going to get into in the series' commentary, but when I'm asking these questions about what were your first reactions when you had finished reading Season 6 scripts, initially it was the 13, Episode 601 to 613, and then came Episode 614 to 619. So you may actually have two sets of first reactions, which I think is fair, particularly given the time difference between the first 13 episodes and then the... Of course, my answer to this question is a little different, which is, what were my first reactions when I'd finished writing Season 6 scripts? Rather than asking for a volunteer, I'm actually going to uh, volunteer Scott to give us his answer for this. And uh, by the way, welcome back. I know you just came back for a couple of episodes as Carson at the end of the series, but nonetheless, welcome back to a commentary for the show. Thank you. It's uh, nice to be back. It was always enjoyable recording this show and having the commentaries short on people today, but, uh, you know, it's always fun to talk about this in retrospect. Uh, I was definitely sad that the, uh, that the story was over and kind of how it ended. I guess I was a little bit disappointed that I don't think Carson really got to really tie up issues. It definitely felt like an end at least, and, uh, you know, I guess a little melancholy. Fair enough. You know, when you say that you felt that it was a sad end, it was sad mostly because the series was also coming to an end, not that yes. the ending itself felt sad. The death of Caden was sad, you know, and it was nice that Carson and everybody kind of came together for that, and of course that leaves a kind of bittersweet ending to it. Alright, so Canis, what were your first reactions when you had finished reading Season 6 scripts? Was it bittersweet as well for you? Okay, so I'm going to cut this into a few pieces because I read the first part of the script originally, and then there was the add-on part. And the first part of the script, the original script, before the changes to it to make it the ending season ended, I thought was really interesting, and it brought up some interesting issues. And it had some fun things going on with it where branching out characters and showing other things going on and trying to get away from the whole original Doe contract idea was quite a good idea because that had been rehashed to the point where nobody even remembered what it was anymore. <laughs> and then we had that underhanded dealing that left on a cliffhanger, which, by the way, I hate cliffhangers, but at least it was an interesting cliffhanger. And I thought that all that was okay. And then... You had the six-episode edition to end the series, and uh, I kind of thought that was kind of weak and lame, because, I'm going to be brutally honest, it felt like it was, was written too fast and not with enough care given to what was going on, and that was eventually changed, but there are still a lot of plot holes that haven't been filled yet, and that's just because everything had to be wrapped up. Okay, I guess we'll get into that uh, a little more as we a little deeper into... Some of the questions, I'm glad that it did improve in your perspective as it went through the revision stage, both the first 13 episodes and then the six episodes to wrap the series. And I'm actually going to talk about one episode in particular that's going to touch on that, at least in some respects. It was late January 2017, 
that I thought I had finished writing the 13 scripts with episode 613 set up as a cliffhanger to be resolved in the season 7 premiere. The immediate moment, as in no time was going to pass between the end of season 6 and the start of season 7 and the show itself, other than the months in between seasons. It was going to be right in the same scene at the same time with the same characters, with the conversation continuing seconds thereafter. But then from late April to June of 2017, I started to actually write seven season scripts, and I finished almost six of them. And in the series commentary, I will talk about why I never wrote episodes 706 to 713. But as we know now, as you said in preface here, season six grew to 19 episodes. I returned to write the rest of this material in late July of 2018, and only episodes 619 was completely new material, which itself went through a near-complete rewrite in January of 2019, the most substantial of any in the series, and I'm even taking into account back in Season 2 when I ended up lopping off a page of all 13 scripts to cut it down to how it had been in Season 1. Very little remained the same between the two versions of Episode 619, other than Pedro starting to drive for Rebu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> episode 701, by the way, became episode 614, including its title. Episode 702, which was entitled Unnecessary at the time, became episode 616, and I had to condense the back and forth between Caleb and Mann, and I removed most of an extended exchange between Nora and the first introduced Evelyn, although as you found out in listening to the series, and anyone listening to this commentary without listening to the season, I, I know understand, but Evelyn has been long alluded to. The start of episode 703 was to have continued this dialogue. Episode 704 became episode 615, as I felt swapping the order of these two made better sense in turn because I was bringing the series to a conclusion. And then episode 705 became episode 616, and episode 706 became episode 618. So everything that I had written for Season 7, up to that point, was included in some way. Some character development, some plot point was included in whole or in part, and I only had to write episode 619 as completely new material in order to uh, wrap it up. And I will say in preface that episode 619 was probably the most universally hated of any first draft scripts. Holy exposition, Batman. Yeah, I know, yeah. man. Exposition <laughs> I know. There was a fair bit, and I'm trying to tie previous seasons together, in part because even if people have been watching the seasons, they're going to forget lots of particularly important details. So I wanted to raise them, but I also wanted it to seem somewhat natural, which kind of sounds unusual, but, I mean, it's Caden. I mean, exposition, he's in love with it. Exactly. I figured it'd be easier for me to mouthpiece exposition, because it goes with his personality. Yeah, I, I mean, exposition is practically foreplay for the guy, so he's uh, probably loving it. Ew, 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 ew. <laughs> Avery would know all about that. Oh, <laughs> the memories, the memories. Ick, ick, ick. <laughs> What you're saying is that Caden is fully functional, programmed in multiple techniques. No, no, no what I'm saying He's is, what he says at the end of every session is one more turn and we go again. <laughs> Which episode this season is your favorite and why? I think before we get into any explanations, I'm going to start by saying that this was really difficult this season, just like my least favorite episode, because I got six more to choose. And I got to choose one out of 19 instead of one out of 13. Huh. But I am going to give the nod to my favorite episode as episode 607, Separation. 
I'll give an honorable mention to episode 602 in a note. Even though the question didn't say I could include an honorable mention, it didn't say I couldn't, and I wrote the question, so there it is. Did anyone else say episode 607? No. <laughs> Scott, what episode did you have as your favorite? I think it was the, uh, the finale. Oh, episode 619 in turn. Yes. Interesting, just in the sense of given what Canis had said about the last six episodes feeling rushed, so I, I don't think Canis is going to choose episode 619. That's fine. I feel like it's somewhere <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in the first 13 episode range. I'm kind of going out on a ledge here when I say that. Well, you're going to fall off that ledge because you're wrong. Oh, I'm <laughs> wrong. Oh, yeah. oh. I, uh, if I had to pick a favorite, which is hard because... As a writer myself, I know that all parts contribute to the whole, and it's hard to pick out the best part. But I think the dream sequence in the hospital is the best episode. Is that 618? Episode 618, Gathering, yes. And the reason I think it's the best has to do mostly with the fact that it's one of those things that happens in your mind, which means that not everything makes sense. And those are always fun because you can see interactions that don't normally happen. Do you think that those interactions would happen between those characters if they allowed themselves to have those interactions, if they put themselves in that position and were honest with each other and themselves? I don't think it would, no. Which is why it's interesting. Ah. When you're looking at all these characters that Caden knows, all of them have baggage with each other, and none of them would talk to each other the same way. So having them all together like that in the same room and having them be different people is an interesting little side diversion that doesn't make a lot of sense from a realism point of view, but as a reminder of who these people are, it does a pretty good job. Do you think the different characters in the sequence were well-placed in terms of the different aspects of Caden's psyche? Riley saying, you know, nodding off again, you promised you were going to teach me to play. Hudson being rather dismissive about the whole thing. Nora saying, oh, he needs more blankets, being very protective. Do you think that that itself was realistic? Yes. That's why it made sense. Because all the characters brought together, but it was all from his perspective as opposed to in interaction with each other. And that makes it an interesting study of that character's mind. And how the conversation ultimately only shifts to his impending death, only admits it to himself. I think Riley said, well, we couldn't very well point it out to you until you realized it yourself. Yeah. Scott, you had said, of course, that Caden's death was bittersweet. Did this scene help with the sweetness in the bittersweet? Yes. I, I liked it because I agree with Candace. It's very um, surreal and you get to kind of have fun with it and try different things. And it felt almost like a fake out at first. If you didn't realize that what was happening was his last moments and he's, his life is kind of flashing before his eyes in a way where all these people are coming together and you kind of just visualize these conversations. And I kind of do that myself, visualize conversations that don't happen. And so it was kind of neat to see that in the scene. So yeah, this is definitely part of that because I felt like some characters didn't really get to know Cadence that much. Especially my character, I, I didn't feel like he really got to. So this really did help with that. You know, he's like passed on, but he, he thought well of my character and my character felt kind of like just this, you know, I guess almost missed opportunity of really getting to know him and being away and everything. So, yeah, it definitely compounds that. Yeah, this 
episode and the last episode. You know, it's interesting you say that, of course, that Caden really didn't get the opportunity to know Carson. And so the Carson that you see in Caden's dream is really, I don't think, necessarily based at all on how Carson would be in any other way. (laughs) Caden has this idealized version of Carson, but almost in a way, Carson could almost be that person, incidentally. I mean, he's not, but Carson felt almost like the narrator in the scene, the one that was pushing it along. Yeah. Uh, Like, if today today is like my captain's log, then the hour has come for its supplemental, which is that that first line that he says, and then Caden's like, you know, that sounds like, but I can't quite see, like, how can you be here? For me, I didn't even think about it. It was important for me for Carson to be there because he served as somebody he knew of, but didn't know right. at the same time and really only understood Carson based on what other people were saying about him or not saying about him. Or quite frankly, what a lot of us do when we don't know somebody, we read about what they say or we even hear what they say, but we don't know them as a person. So we have to try to make that judgment from a distance. I'm glad this scene comes across that way. I didn't want it to be, you know, oh, it's a dream sequence where none of this really matters. Of course it matters. Well, yeah, and I think for some audiences, it's, oh, well, this is just a filler, because this is, nothing's really happening, there's nothing substantial here. I hate when people say that, because this is a character development episode for Caden. You're, you're looking at how he viewed these people, and so you're getting to know the character better and more about him. And I really hate when people dismiss stuff like that. It's like you want the icing and not the cake. You know, you want the flash and not the substance. You, you've got to, well, it's like Canna said, you got to have everything. You can't just have people fighting or having sex. You have to have the talking, <laughs> you know? It's just, it just baffles me how people be like, oh, nothing happened. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. It was one of those scenes that was emotional also to write. Yeah. Because I know even for me, as, as I'm writing it, I, I'm thinking even about my own mortality and would there be a similar conversation that would play out in my own mind and who would those people be and what would they say and what would they do? And like, as you say, Scott, you imagine conversations with people that don't actually happen. And sometimes right. you have those conversations because, and you think, I know this person, this is what this person is going to say. And so you make it realistic. And then in other respects, it's, well, what if this person said this? How would I react? Because I think I know what they're going to say. But then start almost second-guessing yourself, and you start running through the different scenarios so that you're as prepared as you can possibly be. As much as I was doing this, and I wanted it to be serious, the substance, as you say, I wanted there to be a little bit of humor in there, and I wanted it to be, oh, as, as much as introspective as Caden is being in this moment, there still is that humor. And in some instances, I think some of those lines... You know what? That sounds just like if they were those real characters, that they were actually there and having that conversation. But yeah, all of those people being there at the same time, I'm glad it comes across perhaps even better than I had initially intended. Now, you had said episode 619, Scott, as your favorite episode, the series finale. And if you tell me that the reason that it's your favorite is because Carson also appears in it, (laughs) then we're just going to move on to why I chose episode 607. But (laughs) I'm sure that's in there as well. It's like, yay, I have lines here. (laughs) But what is it about 619 beyond that, or maybe even in spite of that, that makes it your favorite of all of season six? The conclusion, the coming together of those characters, you have that dream of Caden. Like I said, he's dying. You see all these characters coming together and the way he thinks, or at least the way his mind is fantasizing about it. 
And then you have the characters coming together for his funeral at the end. And it was just like kind of a nice bookend to that. Here's reality. I enjoyed that. Because for me, I didn't really enjoy the lawyer stuff. I didn't enjoy the business deals and dough contract and the and Carson's video, you know, and the blackmailing. I was like, I'm not that interested in this aspect. I was interested in the relationships and seeing how they came together in the end. So I always enjoy a good ending, and I felt that that was good as a whole. You much prefer the court of public opinion, Q. Avery's derisive comment here, to the court of law and the character developments that go around that. Is that what I said? I didn't realize it. (laughs) Basically, it's just a little bit more fancy way of saying it. Yeah. It was Dan being lawyer-teacher Dan. Yeah. (laughs) As I said, really, episode 607, I mean, the Riley and Hudson relationship right from episode 101 is being alluded to. Again, have the sides acknowledge and have that final conversation, to have that conversation in public and to just really not get any farther along. The fact that the other listened to what the other person had to say, even when they were admitting, okay, yes, I was wrong. And then almost as an audience, you're thinking, okay, they admit they're wrong. You accept that. So things are going to get better now. Yes. And then they get right back into their old ways and nothing improves. I know it seems odd that it's a favorite, but it really did help, I think, in that respect. As for episode 602, and I'm glad I have an honorable mention here, this was in and out. Bella and Gary, and I went back, Bella and Gary have a conversation for the first time since episode 310, Reformation. They last appeared together in both episode 410, which was Shoe Drop, and episode 509, Flank, but they did not speak directly to each other. In episode 602, the conversation they have is meaningful. Gary gets to speak his piece with Riley, too, in episode 601, but this was way more satisfying because Gary and Bella's relationship, of course, is longer standing. It predates the series by a fair bit. And I think if I were to summarize episode 602 with a couple of lines of dialogue, I didn't feel I could do with episode 607. From episode 602, when Gary says... I would make one ugly woman, in reference to something relatively lighthearted in that moment. Bella jumps in and says, don't fret, you're an ugly person regardless, is uh, just, mm-hmm. That about sums up the extent of their relationship, which is not one to be proud of. Episode 609, it was finally an opportunity for Caleb and Avery to finally have at it, but, you know, not that way. Been there, done that in the past. Yeah. In an airport? Wow, damn. (laughs) Well, you know, Mile High Club, huh? Wouldn't that be the... the, Now, wait a minute. This is Canadian. Wouldn't that be the Kilometer High Club? Don't make this weird. Uh, Episode... And uh, I want to give credit to you, uh, Dio, for the uh, God Forbid Parent. Yep, yep. It was a uh, comment that you made during the last season commentary. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Avery having a kid may actually break her. (laughs) (laughs) She's completely have no idea what to do. I'm pretty sure she'd be uh, turning any spawn of hers into a mini-me, which would be hilarious. Yeah, but getting to that point where she could actually turn it into a mini-me would be the interesting part. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of hard to argue with. Why do I picture the kid running through the house of the broom pretending to be a witch flying back and forth? Yeah, I mean, you can't really, like, you know, 
sass a toddler into doing things for you. It's just gonna yell at you. <laughs> the toddler just grins, like shoves their hand in their face, and says, like, "Yeah, yeah, pretty much." And the whole initial exchange between Max and Nora about the telepathic communication of their children—man, that was fun to write. I'm really surprised you didn't have Avery like mutter telepathetic or something. Ah, <laughs> oh, you missed an opportunity there, Dan. Uh, well, <laughs> there has to be some hope for Avery. Well, admittedly, Avery was trying to be slightly diplomatic. Oh, you can still request her to say the line and just interject it if you feel like it. <laughs> I could, but you know, Avery's on a mission here. She is trying to get something accomplished for herself. So, when is she not? <laughs> That's the whole point. True enough. Run a moment to get to episode 618 gathering. I know it's just even as I wrote it, I thought I, I kind of half anticipated someone saying, Oh, of course, a show has been around for multiple seasons. You have to have effectively the dream sequence episode. Oh, how old is this? You know, there's a reason it's been around. Shropes aren't bad, they're time honored. If she didn't have everybody wake up at the end in the last episode, and it's it turned... all in a snow globe. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't just have him wake up in the shower the next day, and the whole everything didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Say it was all a fanfic. You didn't have a, like a confession scene where the person didn't hear them, so he was better. No Bob Newhart stuff. No Saint Elsewhere stuff. No, no, no. Aw, this isn't all just Max's fever dream. Damn. No. Well, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be, because he's the only one who breaks the fourth wall. Intentionally. He fell asleep one evening taking care of the twins, and this is the whole thing. Yep. Take care of the twins? Got him into that situation. <laughs> Which episode this season is your least favorite, and why? And I will start with you, Scott. Oh, great. Um, let's see. That is tough. To say, hmm, I guess I'll go with first episode 601, listening to Gary and, and Riley bitching at each other. And <laughs> just like, okay, guys, you can act your age, not like five-year-olds or whatever it is. <laughs> I think everybody on this entire series is emotionally yeah. five years old. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least has extended periods of that. <laughs> of childishness, yes. For you, episode 601, would you give it credit to the point that, okay, they needed to have this breakup conversation, but it didn't need to be a whole episode? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, I just, you know, like how, you know, because I've known people, like Gary is how old, like 50? He just acts again, like, a, yeah, Riley's probably not that, that much younger, and really, you know, it's like, grow up. Guys, seriously, that's, I, I guess that's really, you know, if I really had to voice an opinion on this, I just think they should grow up. They, and they're sitting there passing judgment on other people, and it's like, you're not really any better yourself. As you're saying that, and I'm, I'm just started scrolling through the episode myself, but I stopped pretty well at the end of the first page and went back to near the start of the episode. The exchange between Gary and Riley, right before Riley slaps Gary where Gary is, I have done next to everything you asked of me in our relationship and still not enough for you. Nothing is ever enough for you. And Riley's response is, you want me to thank you for that? You weren't doing me any favors. You were showing me that you loved me. And Gary says, how did you become this self-absorbed and oblivious at such a young age? 
So that touches upon the eight difference in there, and I think also their inability to see eye-to-eye at the same time until towards the end of this particular episode. When I say least favorite, I don't mean, oh, you wrote a bad episode, Dan. I mean, I just don't like what's happening here. I mean, there is a difference. You can not like something, and it's still good, and it still needs to be there. But I'm not saying, oh, this was badly written or anything. It's just these guys are just being dumb. And, you know, Riley, I get it now. Look at how much older I had to get before I realized that you were the only one compromising in this relationship. I'm a fence and you're a goalie. You do what you're asked and you take it as it comes. Actually, if I talk about their relationship right before that, Gary says no relationship worth having is simply really... Another way of putting that is we're better off alone than with each other. Yeah. And that's always sad to see. Yes, it is. But I think, and on previous commentaries too, first off there is the, I'm sorry they're getting together. What is this? <laughs> Riley's the one that pursued this relationship initially. Gary just kind of went along for it. There's enough blame to go around. Riley behaved badly. But I think Gary compromised way too much for too long, and he either didn't say what was on his mind, or he didn't say what was on his mind at the right time. Because sometimes, well, not just sometimes, but timing is often everything. So they both contributed to that relationship, and they're bad and they should feel bad, but they also (laughs) came to a realization at the same time it was almost a mutual breakup by the time it came to an end. Even though Gary wasn't really pushing for, like, no, this is the end, and you need to understand this is the end. And Riley's like, okay, that's that. What was your least favorite episode this season, Candace? And I think I think sometimes when people choose a least favorite episode, as you said, it's hard to choose a favorite or an episode because all of the episodes are interconnected. They're not really self-contained. But perhaps the least favorite episode is one that really didn't advance anything or was just kind of duplicated things that were covered in other episodes. It's hard to say. I mean, the flippant answer would be the one where the car crash happens because I didn't like pretending to be an actor, but (laughs) that's not an answer. (laughs) I feel like the one I didn't like, it was, I'm trying to remember which one this was, but there was some conversation between Hudson and Caleb that happened that was like, what are you talking about? Was this the one where they were at the gas station? I don't think it was a bad episode necessarily. It was just kind of superfluous. There was talking going on, but it wasn't going anywhere. It's hard to pinpoint this because I'm also a writer who puts in a lot of stuff that isn't really strictly necessary for plot advancement, but that's my style. It's the weakest to you because if someone said, what episodes do I need to listen to in order to understand what happened? You can be like, oh, you can skip episode 604. Yes. Okay. I would agree with that. It's There was no plot development. There was definitely no character development. I will admit something here. Episode 604, being at the gas station, was (laughs) one of those things where it actually initially went around an idea, something that I've noticed in real life, and I'm going to quote Hudson from this. I found it amusing that it ended up being the character that I voiced, where he says, quote, It never ceases to amaze me how, when this station gets busy, these pumps have few to no lines to them, while the ones adjacent get three or four more cars waiting deep each. Even as I stand here demonstrating that this pump cord can reach, no one has moved in line behind me. That the cords on these pumps can reach over the length of most vehicles. And a lot of people I find, at least where I live, don't want to do that. Even where it does that, and they see other people doing that, 
whatever side that their tank is on where they would fill up, they're going to go to that line at the gas station. Even when they're going to, as I said, they're four or five deep and the other ones are empty. And sometimes you can't do that. Or sometimes it's too difficult to try to turn the vehicle around in order to be able to have your vehicle on the other side. But when you have ones that the really long pumps that extend over the length of the vehicles, I like going to those stations locally because I'm more likely to be able to be in and out. So part of it was, okay, so what characters can I have? And they're demonstrating this. Let's try to make it more meaningful than that and to the story. What characters could I have have an extended conversation where they're arguing about this or they're conversing about this, but this is not really about this? That it starts with that and then they start rehashing things that happened from earlier seasons. It was another opportunity for me to see for Caleb and Hudson to have an argument. (laughs) And I know later on Caleb says, oh, Hudson, you say you're a better person, but clearly you're not from this conversation. And I'm thinking, well, pot, kettle, black, none of you really are very good people. The line man is like, can you guys leave already? You don't have to go into the hut to pay because you tapped your cards at the pump. And Hudson's like, how would you know? And man's like, we've talked. We also drew lots to decide which one of us would speak up on our behalf. Caleb, you drew the short straw then, huh? Man, no, the long. We all wanted to tell you off. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the other thing that I felt that this did, was Caleb and Hudson completely oblivious to other people in this town waiting on them both to actually get to the pump and get on with their life, but also people having to listen to Caleb and Hudson have this conversation when all of these characters have been in the court of public opinion and the court of public law in this small town for years, and it's just the same old, same old, and I'm going to use an expression that perhaps some members of our audience don't understand, it's like an old record player. Oh. You turn the record over already. We're listening to the same thing over and over. And it's tiresome, but I at least tried to make it a humorous tiresome. And by humorous, I mean we're laughing at Caleb and Hudson. We're definitely not laughing with them. Are these 44s or 72s? Uh, Whichever one you think is more humorous. And the last line of the episode, which is, man, jackasses. Yes, it is is the jackass episode. I think that's fair. But yes, in terms of plot movement, character development, yeah, there was was a little indulgence there as a writer with, hmm, how annoying can I make these people? And what situation can I put them in to make them that extra annoying? But then at the same time, have a little bit of the audience in Man be in this season, which is the, one of the reasons I wanted to introduce Man, to have someone that could essentially be like a narrator, be a character in the story, so they're not narrating, but they're able to try to point a mirror to the other characters to say, this is how you people are perceived, by the way, if you care to know. And usually they actually don't care to know, which is part of the problem. He's like the straight man. Absolutely. More of the straight man than Caden ever was. And of course, Caden, over the course of the series, has become less and less of that. I mean, he still delivers it in the straight man style, but the stuff he's saying and the stuff that he's doing is not that. So man kind of becomes, in that respect, I think, the substitute for Caden. But of course, man was never intended to develop. I didn't even name him. There's one point, actually, in, in The Gathering, where man starts to say my name is, but Caden blacks out when he says the name. So we purposely don't know his name. Man can be whoever you want him to be. My least favorite episode in this season is very close to episode 604. I mentioned episode 605, Convergence. That's my least favorite. It is amusing, 
to have Caleb and Hudson go to the same place twice in a row, having been at the gas station, episode 604 lined up. But nothing further needed to be said between Caleb and Nora, or Caleb and Max for that matter. Bella's contribution was trite, Max was superfluous, and Hudson's reasons for being there, one more turn solutions being audited, because Carson wasn't keeping good track of the books and needed his lawyer Gary's help, was random. There was absolutely no reference, direct or otherwise, through this event or character development related to Carson previously. And it was also never resolved. There was never even a one line about, hey, Carson, don't forget to check the books. Don't forget to submit the books to the accountant. Don't forget to spend time to finish the accounts receivable this month. Absolutely nothing about it. And as I will also get to, there is (laughs) no resolution to it either. Uh, (laughs) Why I included it? It was intended to be something that would have been a part of a full Season 7, and in needing to wrap up the story primarily, but not exclusively primarily due to real-life reasons on myself, it got dropped. And I will, instead of an honorable mention for least favorite, you can't have an honorable mention for least favorite. It has to be a dishonorable mention for least favorite. And I'm going to give that to Episode 608, Turn Around. There's lots of plot threads from this and some earlier seasons tied together into one, and it's again very much carried by Caden, which given his character was consistent, but oh my gosh, there's a lot of exposition. There is a lot of summary from previous seasons, which even if you've watched previous seasons, I know is helpful, but at the same time, yes, I know it reads like a book report, and nobody really looks back on book reports fondly, so sorry, not sorry. <laughs> it just makes you appreciate all the other episodes more. There's, that's what I was going for. I, I should have started with that. That would have been more believable if I said it at the start. Oh, gosh, this episode is depressing. Yeah, <laughs> this is really, uh... It's something they both should have done, but it's still depressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, at some point, that was not working. But I think, Scott, as a parent yourself, you can relate to some of the issues that Max and Nora were dealing with, including finding gross things in gross places. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I deal with that. I only have a cat. Your favorite character in season six and why? It is unlikely with only three of us that we are going to have the same answer because there's so few of us on the recording, but that also hopefully makes for the start of some interesting conversation and less monologuing. Uh, I'm going to say... Actually, I'm going to say last. I know I went last on the last one, but I'd like to think that my answer is going to come as a surprise. But we shall see. Canis, who was your favorite character in Season 6? We'll just start with who the favorite character is. Ah, uh, that's a hard one. I feel like the story arc got so abruptly sliced off when there was the car accident that a lot of stuff got forgotten so it's hard to say i enjoy hudson because he's not as bad as he used to be but he's still completely insane (laughs) but it doesn't feel like he's changed a whole lot more than just not being involved with bella anymore that has just made him a less onerous person yeah i would say hudson's still very much in it for himself but he's more upfront about it, and he at least, when he's trying to figure out what is in the best interest of himself, he at times thinks about, hmm, I wonder if this is in the best interest of anybody else. I should point that out to them, so they know what a wonderful person I am. <laughs> Which he does, definitely, on occasion. He's your favorite. Well, I don't know if I'd say he's my favorite, but he's the most notable, because okay, Caleb doesn't really do that much in terms of development, 
Max and Nora are just kind of there. I mean, they don't really do anything other than just have the kids and try to do their housing thing, trying to figure out what they're going to do, and they don't seem to really make a decision. And Bella is just cranky. Bella was a hot mess. Um. <laughs> well, Bella is always a hot mess, though. That's That's her thing. And she doesn't know what she wants, either. She thinks she knows what she wants, but when she gets it, she doesn't want it anymore. Scott, your favorite character, or maybe you're looking at it more the way Candace is, which is the most memorable? Uh, I I guess it's always a tie-up between Max and Caleb, mostly because they say funny or amusing things. It doesn't always have to be actionable stuff, just like, am I entertained by this person kind of thing? And do they show any kind of growth? Would you say that Max had more character growth this season or Caleb? Because I think you said when it comes down to their lines, as Max and Caleb have the funnier lines, Max not purposely trying to be funny and Caleb trying to be funny and usually is. Yeah. Who do you think had the greater progress? Who was a better version of themselves by the end of the season? That's tough. I guess I'll go with Max, mostly because becoming a parent is very difficult. With Caleb, it's kind of left hanging, you know, if it's really going to stick. So uh, I'll go with Max. He's in the trenches, as it were, and uh, he's obviously doing parenting things. So it's you can see he's making progress. So with Caleb, I just felt like just a little bit left. Too much of a question mark to be sure if he's progressing or not. I think that's fair. With Max in particular, you mentioned about becoming a parent. Although not a parent myself, as a secondary school teacher and knowing a number of people who are parents and my parents and friends' parents and other relatives' parents, of course, there is no manual, as you well know, Scott, and Max's easygoing nature and at times also deference to Nora in those instances often where it's like a safety consideration or a dealing with people's feelings situation is helpful, but his easygoing nature makes him very adaptable and it makes him roll with the punches and he learns from his mistakes as well. But when something happens, he's typically not getting flustered and then getting frozen and like, I don't know what to do, that he just goes on to the next thing. And if it works, great, I'm going to try to replicate. And if it doesn't work, well, let's try to figure it out. Would you say that that's a fair assessment of your point? Yeah, I feel like there are some... I guess, quote-unquote, manuals. I mean, there's definitely people who feel that they're expert enough to have written books on child raising, but uh, I know that's always kind of contentious topic as well, because uh, some people might disagree very vehemently on that, but also that um, the fact that he's there at all, you know, because there are people who decide, you know what, I may have helped sire a child, but I'm not going to raise it and just death. So I'm giving credit for that as well. Max shows up. Yeah, he does. And I think your point about Caleb, I mean, you said, you know, Max is there in the trenches and Caleb is kind of looking at the trenches. Yeah. Which is good. You're you're looking at it, but, and maybe you are making a step closer to it, but just because you're a step closer to it doesn't mean you're actually going to be in there and do anything, whether it's good or bad. So I get that. My favorite character in season six And this is not someone that I've chosen before. I went back, by the way. I went back to see what I had said in previous seasons. I talked about Max for this season. Season four, I said Max. Seasons three and five, it was Nora. Season two, I said Caleb. Season one, I said Carson. I'm going to give it to Caden in season six. 
<laughs> it's not just for those very occasional one-liners from Caden that is so funny because it's Caden. I'm thinking in particular, episode 602 in and out, where Caden says to Bella, we have not, nor do I suspect we will ever engage in sexual congress with one another. He's joking, but also being serious. And my serious reasons for citing Caden here is he gets the increasingly bickering business partners, Avery and Bella, to retroactively refer to him and keep him on as an associate to their business because he realizes this is to my benefit to do this. Even though Avery and Bella don't want to do that, he manages to sidestep his ended personal relationship with Avery and say, you know, Bella, it would make more sense for me to be your associate, strictly speaking, on paper, because we didn't have that personal relationship. But since the two of you are partners, I am your associate. Despite getting flustered and speaking to Reese when she reminds him of their family structure, he manages not only to gain the upper hand plot-wise, which forces her to invite Hudson to quote-unquote join their enterprise, which, as the newly found elder cousin, Hudson would usurp Reese as its head, but the character also gets under Reese's skin. When he refers to her authority as being open to challenge, and Reese tells him that we will speak of Pedro forgetting his place in this association with the family no more. Caden's like, we may not, but I predict you will. And there's just enough truth in it, or at the very least, knowing how forward and formal and honest Caden is, that I think Reese kind of stops and says, oh, Caden says something. He says it with purpose. It might not actually be that he's trying to rile me up. He's speaking the truth. I really should be concerned about this. And speaking of that family structure, he explains it well to Hudson so that he can make an informed decision. It also very much helped with this, and I will admit the whole family structure thing was definitely a plot device to facilitate the downfall of Reese, or at the very least, the sidelining of Reese. Season 7 would not have had Reese down and out. It was Reese having to refocus her efforts and try to find new allies. But alongside Riley... In episode 611, we've got Riley, who has no authority but standing as a step-sibling. We've got the witness, Caleb. And how Caden himself well summarizes this linchpin of power he held regarding Hudson's existence and significance. Because Caden says, I had to assess Hudson through personal interaction observed over time as to his suitability for being told of this position he could seize. And that while Hudson failed that assessment... Reese, quote-unquote, failed to remain the suitable alternative. And Hudson's like, victory. And Caleb's like, but you won by default. And Hudson's like, hey, a victory's still a victory. Caden ultimately proved that he did not share her zeal for bringing down anyone and everyone over the door contract. Like, let's, let's get over this now. It's not just affecting family, but it's affecting people that I now regard as friends. You know, Caden went into this following Reese pretty well blindly because he felt he had to because of the family structure and felt that on some level, yes, this is good for the family. We're going to, we're going to expose these people. And Carson is already left and Riley's already lost her business here. So this must be a sign that we are doing the right thing. But Caden finally realizes that this is self-destructive. This is going in the past. No one has any interest in talking about this anymore. Other characters included and a lot of members of the audience, I think also ourselves included. And then lastly, and we talked about this before, episode 618 and Gathering. Only in his dying dream, the line 
right before he passes away at the end of the episode where he says, quote, I may not say it or rarely show it, but that he loves everyone deeply. I, I feel like the actions that he took and when he took them and who he said it and how he said it to made it clear that he did love them all and he felt he was doing what needed to be done for the benefit of everybody, even if they didn't realize it now or ever with really no expectation about what was going to end up with him, made himself very, very vulnerable for turning his back on the only family that he knew and a very fractured family that is not necessarily going to embrace him or have embraced him to this point. And I thought that that was a lot for Caden, particularly given his, his social anxiety for him to be able to do it all, particularly given how little he really knows these people for the short amount of time that he knew them. He was a good character. He was. He kind of reminded me of Gata a little bit, especially that line you said about, well, I don't believe we'll be having sexual congress, or the way you said it. It was just very Gata-like to me, and I thought he was very funny, very amusing, and I did feel sympathy for him. He was trying to relate to people, but always seemed to have difficulty doing so. And I think that's also another reason why I liked him overall and helped make him, him a favorite, his keep trying even though he was struggling, that he didn't stop. Right. That he knew what he wanted. Unlike some people, he knew what he wanted. And I think at some point, not being successful, at least a little bit, to have some kind of encouragement, where he really didn't have a lot of encouragement from any other characters. Like, there was no thank you, Caden, for doing this, or that's very thoughtful, Caden, for saying that. Would be pretty difficult for anybody. Also being the youngest out of any of the characters, he was in his early 20s, when the show started, that I think he really showed his maturity beyond his years. That the other characters, maybe not you know in the same way, including the same speech pattern, but the way that he approached trying to relate to people, I think, would serve not all, but a lot of the other characters very well. And Scott, you talked about how in episode 619... That a lot of a lot of people are getting together for his funeral. I think that's a reasonable inference because there's mention that well Hudson is joining Caden's parents to the burial, and it almost seems like I don't know why these other people would be there. They don't directly say that they were at the funeral, and yes, there's that Evelyn comment about oh I don't see why you know, the loss of one of your exes you know boy toys. I mean she's very dismissive of Caden, but she doesn't know Caden right. She only knows what she's heard about in the news about Caden, but everyone else seems to be, even though they're not really talking about Caden, other than Bella, who says, Caden's death really made me look at who I am as a person and what I want out of life, because life's short, and I really think that helped get people, at least a number of characters, on a better track, maybe not the best track, and not a media fix or anything like that, but a full extended season seven would have had pretty well every character going through some kind of serious look at who they are. Not necessarily because Caden pointed it out to them, but Caden's the youngest of us, and that was a tragic accident that did just kind of come out of nowhere. What if that had been me? Am I really happy with what my life is right now and what I've done with it and why? We start to get a little bit of that in episode 619, and I hope that kind of comes across as kind of one of those watershed moments for the other characters, that those characters can say, I can remember where and when I was doing when I found out that Caden was in an accident and or when I learned that Caden passed away. If there had been a season 7 
Evelyn would have been a much more prominent character in causing lots of problems. And then I even started thinking about, okay, gotta have this ultimate showdown between Bella and Avery and Evelyn. It's like, no, I'm the bigger bitch. No, me! (laughs) (laughs) I showed up at the edge, guys! (laughs) All the edge. (laughs) Bella, the new and improved Evelyn? (laughs) I'm not sure which of them would object more. I like being able to swear on the interwebs. I like fighting with Avery. Least favorite character in season six, and why? I'll start. Avery. Anyone else have Avery on their list? Probably. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I just want to say Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> because Candace phrased it as the most memorable, your most memorable could also be your oh, yeah. least favorite character. There could be a very memorable character and you still hate them. Well, I, to be fair, there's not a single good character in that, <laughs> that yeah, entire point. series. They're all terrible people. They're all very flawed. I just think Hudson might be more flawed than some of the rest. Ironically enough, Hudson was the only character in that season that I actually wanted to succeed, because it seemed like he was trying to do the right thing, even though he couldn't figure out how to do it. Because everybody else was just super involved in all their own personal minutiae. And he was like, you know, let's stop this whole town controlling obscure, in the shadows, Binderberg group type manipulation that's going on. The takedown of the Reese and Caden family structure, the caste system. Also, I hate journalists, so. (laughs) Reese is right up there with awfulness, but that's totally profession based. What is it about Hudson in season six? Are you saying least favorite or least memorable or how describing your disdain for Hudson in season six? <laughs> well, definitely not least memorable. Just, uh, I guess, least liked. <laughs> I don't hate him. I just like him the least of all the other characters I might like more. Oh, okay. Was it more about what the other characters did or didn't do or say or didn't say that made you like them more than Hudson? Or was there something that Hudson said or didn't say or did or didn't do that makes you go, no, I like him less than everybody else. I guess he always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and this season didn't make him better for me, so I guess that's why I'm going with that. It's just, I guess for me, he's done the least progress. You know, when we talk about highs and lows for the characters that you voiced, that when I talk about Hudson, I actually, in summary, came up with five highs and five lows, and depending upon how you weight those, you could definitely come to the conclusion that Hudson ends up being your least favorite. Would you give Hudson a pass? By that, I mean, if you were ranking them in terms of how much you liked them, would Hudson get at least a 50% or is he below 50%? Oh, he could be above 50. Okay, 51, understood. All right, well, (laughs) (laughs) if I look back on previous commentaries, I did say Hudson was my least favorite character in season one, but that's when he was a very different version of himself. So who was your least favorite then? Riley. Well, she was a lot like Bella, except she wasn't attacking other people. She was just trying to not crash into the wall. Because she had no idea what she was doing and no idea what she needed to do. And she was just kind of flailing around, not really making any progress in any direction. That's fair. <sighs> I mean, I I talk about the highs and lows of the plot for this season, and as entertaining as it was to write the shouting match between Riley and Gary, 
And then, quite frankly, the altercation between Riley and Hudson, maybe that's a bit strong a word, disagreement between them. Riley was definitely trying to find a footing in that conversation, and she would say something, and then something would be said back to her. It's like, well, no, you're not right about that, or yeah, but what about this encounter? And then she would go on to something else, or she would have this little pity party. Really, with Hudson, she had a lot of pity party, which was, oh, you know, the Doe contract set up the next series of disappointments in my life, and it was, first off, that's giving the Doe contract way too much credit. (laughs) And it's also, you are dismissing your responsibility for your own self, both in terms of what happens in it and how you regard it. As painful as it sometimes can be and how sometimes misleading it is, I think when you say, you know, it's not the situations you face, but how you respond to it, because sometimes the situations you face are also how you do or do not respond to other things. But Riley is always about, well, I have to keep reacting to things that happen to me, and they're all negative, and I'm not responsible for it. As I said, the pity party gets pretty tiresome, and she really has had a six-season-long pity party. And I think if Makalua, the voice performer for Riley, were here, she'd probably agree with that. At least I would. I, I think that she would, because we've talked about this before in previous commentaries, that, you know, if Bella is a hot mess, Riley's just a mess. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of redeeming Riley, and not even Riley redeeming Riley in any way. Oh, Avery. Oh, Avery. In uh, episode 609, Negotiation, she says to Caleb, when the non-negotiables of others adversely affect my own, the only acceptable recourse is retaliation. Really says a lot about how she views life. To me, this is the you either screw or be screwed, which unfortunately, I think there are times when that is true. But when that is your mantra for life, then you are going to surround yourself with people and or circumstances that also, you attract yourself to that. People also start to notice that and look at you as, "Mm, I either screw Avery or I get screwed by Avery. There's always a winner and a loser, right? When Caleb's characterization of her as the only non-negotiable is that anything and everything is negotiable, she says, well, that is strikingly accurate. In response to Bella slapping her for speaking of Bella's mother who left her as a child, Aries like, if you ever lay a hand on me again, you will not live to regret it. Very confrontational. She's always going to that. And she means it. I mean, there, I think there are times where she is bluffing. I don't know necessarily to what extent. But she has no problem picking a fight. Even when she doesn't want to fight, it's, well, this is how I'm going to show dominance. I'm going to fight. In that case, it's an allusion to physical violence. But oftentimes, it's just in words and otherwise in actions. She is really unkind to people, and she's unkind to characters that you may not like a lot. And overall, like Caleb, for example, I think Caleb has those times where he's likable, other times he's not very likable. Uh, he's also unkind to Max. What am I speaking about? Avery tells Caleb, well, you lose in love, and you do it so well. But she's referring to her having dumped him via email some years back, and that he needs to get over it. now. Getting over it is, incidentally, good advice for Caleb, but still, the time and the place and the way she says it, you know, it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it, right? Oh, and that Caleb should have, quote-unquote, gotten used to being blocked as a result of being rejected by Riley, as well as Bella, ultimately. That was in episode 609, Negotiation, and episode 610, Mediation. 
Caleb already knows that, and other people know that, and you just like pointing it out because it makes you feel superior and important, and you really are just a small, small person. Telling Max in episode 613 turnabout, are you unaware that part of your reputation, that people come to laugh at you, not with you, that you are the joke? I think that description would have been more accurate of Max in the first few seasons, when he was very much comic relief. But I think that's really denigrating Max's contribution, both in his family, as you said, Scott, you know, like Max shows up, very much prominent part of Max's identity as being a parent, and he's embracing that. And maybe the results aren't always the best, but he keeps showing up and demonstrate that he's not making the same mistakes and that he's trying to improve. Now, he's inconsiderate and unprofessional to Bella, which, depending upon your opinion of Bella, you think, oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) They are business partners. So when she's inconsiderate to Bella, also in the presence of others, by purposely bringing up personal past that has absolutely no bearing on the present situation, asking her, didn't your mother ever teach you? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And then the unspoken, oh, that's right, your mother left, so she never taught you anything. I mean, that, she doesn't go quite that far, but the way she says it and the time she says it, that, that's Avery for you. Being unprofessional to Bella, also in the presence of others, still episode 614. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of your ability to judge character, now is it? And then she also calls Bella, in the presence of others, a deceitful bitch, which you may agree that Bella was that, or maybe still is that. But at the same time, you're undermining Bella. Is not also undermining you, since at that point you are partners, or you're just trying to show that you are the dominant partner, and you think that this is a way to conduct yourself, a way to influence others? (sighs) Threatening. Threatening to Bella. In the same episode, she goes from inconsiderate to unprofessional to threaten. You will keep your mouth shut, and you will play your part. Or I will push for your permanent disbarment of her being able to practice as a lawyer, even though Bella is not practicing as a lawyer right now. It's like, okay, let's go from 0 to 60 in 2.3 seconds. What is this? She confronts Caleb in the municipal airport to convince him to join her plan of retaliation against Bella for calling in the mortgage of their building, inferring that he will be out of a job as a result, and she is playing on Caleb's sympathies for Max and Nora, when, as Caleb pointed out in the conversation, she had the power to reverse it, but she's not going to reverse it. And so by not reversing it, she sets up this situation where mm, Caleb should join in her plan to get back at Bella when... Avery has the immediate, much simpler, cleaner solution. She enables Max and Nora to take advantage of Caleb's gaming habit for their own. I mean, however understandable game by placing bets on a multiplayer match between Caleb and Pedro, where Avery would get the biggest cut of the profit. But she only agrees to this when it's pointed out that it would not only help her get back at Bella for sleeping with Pedro, but also at Caden for lying to her. This about getting Caleb to uh, have that rematch, for Caleb to represent one more term solutions, where Pedro's going to represent Acme Smith. And yes, you know, Max and Nora, they're taking advantage of that, and they know that. And it's a bit of a rationalization uh, as an aside here. It's like, like, we're putting our family first. We lost a lot of mortgage money, and we've got two young mouths to feed. And Avery recognizes this. It's not, oh, I'm going to do this to help Max and Nora because of something Bella, my partner, did. She's not only not going to reverse it, but she's actually realizing, you know what? I can actually gain. Bella did this without talking to me for her benefit as a bit of a power trip. Besides, most of the mortgage money was going to Bella anyway, because she was managing that part of the business. 
Avery now sees as an opportunity for her to gain. Only it has to be pointed out to her by Max and Nora exactly how she would gain. And uh, Avery, only time she is even remotely caring is in Episode 6-8, The Gathering, the dream sequence. And that's in a Caden really hallucination, right? This is how he sees or would like to see Avery. And even though they broke up, Caden still has feelings for Avery. Whereas, well, I mean, Evelyn refers to, and I, I alluded to it as well, where Evelyn ends up referring to Caden as Avery's boy toy. Not really certain Avery thought of Caden as anything more as the flavor of the week. I know I'm monologuing here a lot with, with, with some of the stuff, but I just, Avery was just, there's just so many things to talk about in particular with her that makes her a least favorite character. And when I say least favorite, I mean likable. The series would be considerably less engaging without her. You need this conflict, right? The best stories, I think most of the best stories, have some kind of conflict, and Avery has that in spades. But it's just, ah. Uh, why do you have to rub salt in the wound all the time? Why do you have to dig the knife in a little deeper when the damage is already done? But that's the way she is. That's the way she operates. That's the way she thinks. And unfortunately, I think most people know somebody like that. And if you're thinking, I don't know anybody like that in my life, then there's a good chance you are that person. Uh-oh. There's some introspection right there. Drop the mic. All right. All right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. We know a lot more about Bella's family in this story. We really don't know about Avery's background at all. We don't know if she has any siblings or not. We're assuming, reasonably inferred, that Bella does not, but we don't know much of anything about Avery. Maybe that's just Pretty as well. Sure. I, I don't know. I mean, Avery could, was like some. You could fill out the entire like universe if you actually felt like it. So. Yeah, there's a distinct <laughs> lack of world here, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> we don't even know the town name. Exactly. Where are we? Yeah, well, it's Canada, eh? There's only one. There's only one. <laughs> They're just passing around the same five phone numbers you need. Oh, come on. It's not five anymore. It's eight. <sighs> I'm pretty sure Avery was summoned with some, like, dark magic or something. She is a succubus. We knew it. <laughs> Uh, we can only imagine those scenes when uh, Kate would be together with Avery, and then... Yeah, she slowly devours his soul, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then she puts a little spit of the soul aside in a container as a snack for later. Puts it in a gym, and then she uses it to recharge her, you know, war yeah. or something. I don't know that Avery has souls in jars. I think she's probably more partial to other body parts. Oh, I thought you were going to say that she'd be she's partial to other containers. But sure, yeah, I... I I guess. It's, yeah, well, but yeah, oh, sorry, the that's not class enough. She wants store souls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't class enough to have a jar. She has to put it in a bento box or something. <laughs> Portioned out perfectly. That's <laughs> <laughs> better than the time she turned into a kimchi container and just left them in the ground for a while. Character highs and lows. I felt like most of the characters hit their series lows at some point during this season. Like, the end of that W.B. Yeats poem, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, etc., etc. It just felt like everything was falling apart. I feel like when Max kind of lost his temper, that felt very out of character for him. Is this when he tells Bella to get out in episode 603 on a dime? I think so, yes. (laughs) 
I'm going to quote Max here just to hopefully confirm what it is that you think you're referring to specifically. He tells Bella, there's no excuse for you. Never has been, and I doubt there ever will be. You're upsetting my wife, and well, quite frankly, you've ruffled my feathers at that. Yes. I just want to back up some of the conversation here because I don't know if I should say particularly given, but I'm, I'm going to say particularly given, not only because they are husband and wife, but I feel like especially because they're husband and wife, Nora's already upset with Bella. Max talks about, I've been told there's a hole in my head. And Nora's like, and what have you been told about your ability to paraphrase? Bella's, to be fair, technically we all have several. Nora's like, I will curve you at another or you're going to tell us why you're here already. And then Bella makes a reference, oh, your time of the month has returned with a vengeance, then I take it. And then Nora asks Bella, just how hollow on the inside are you? And I realize, like, tensions are really running high. But then Bella says, not as much as the head that sits on top of your husband's shoulders. And Max says, like, get out. Okay, I've had enough of you. And then at the end, Max tells Bella, you can take your mortgage and shove it up the dark side of your moon. I mean, part of me is, like, rooting for Max in this moment. I'm like, yes! Bella needed to hear something like that, and the fact that it came from Max, you piss Max off, and you piss off Max that much that he says that to you, you've done something a lot worse, what Max has said, because Max is a pretty easygoing guy. But yes, I, I definitely agree, Candace, that, that Max let himself get that worked up and get that emotional and show that he was that agitated really put him, and by extension, Nora, in a vulnerable position. Now, Bella really doesn't she is kind of capitalizing it on the moment, because right after that, she's like, I'm calling in the mortgage on your building, which is why Max says, take your mortgage and shove it up the dark side of your moon. It's one of those things where, man, it feels really great for five seconds to say that, and then afterwards, it's, oh, no, I'm going to pay. And Max is doing, he's showing up to be a parent, and he's continuing to show up to be husband. We talked a few seasons ago, how about it looked like, man, Max and Nora headed for divorce, how awful they were to each other in the months leading up to the birth of their children. And things are getting better, but actually lets Bella get under his skin and lashes out. Were there any highs for one or more characters this season, Candace? As you said, most of them had a low in terms of their behavior. Did anyone or anyone's have some highs that are worthy of note? Caden did pretty well. He didn't really seem to be malicious. He was just trying to carve a place for himself. Absolutely. I would say if anyone came close to having a high, it was Caden. But that could also be because the second half of the season is kind of about him anyway. Because they're trying to figure out what he's going to be doing, and he takes the risk, and then he also gets basically deus ex machina. Yeah. Now, Scott, yep. really, this is, I think this is a difficult question for you to answer, too, only because... I'm going to answer this question, Dan. I, Carson was in two episodes. What? And one was an, illu- an illusion, not even <laughs> really him. And one was not even really him. <laughs> yeah, so despite that, rise above. Uh, what are the highs in the... Okay, that's a bit harsh, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> what, I guess the high that he came... He came, came back. back. He came back at all. Um, <laughs> so there's a high. Carson showed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was kind of hoping for some sort of conversation between him and Caleb, so I would guess that would be the low that we didn't really get anything more he showed up but then this is like hi <laughs> i mean it's like i'm here but you know just kind of like that was it do you think that uh, carson and caleb in episode 619 and turn had one of those moments that 
Gary and Bella had in season four and episode five, where they were in the same scene together, but they weren't talking to each other. They weren't really talking to each other. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Now, they did do a little better than Gary and Bella. Yeah. They did talk to each other directly, but it really didn't go anywhere. It was essentially, Caleb, are you getting support for your gambling? Yeah. Carson, are you getting support for your drinking? Yeah. And then they both reference their mother. And it's like, hey, how dare you reference our mother? It's, it's repeated from the other side, and it goes absolutely nowhere. So they have not resolved. They're not right. talking to each other. They're just really talking at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have any siblings myself, and unfortunately, in knowing some siblings, that I think they are better off having little to no contact. I think Caleb and Carson spent too long with their lives intertwined, personal and professional. They're working together. Does not work, but at the same time, (laughs) they're having their relationship be a reflection of how far they physically live, which is very far apart. It's not just going to be physically, that's where we're emotionally going to be to each other as well, was an unfortunate overreaction for both of them. So I would agree that that's a low for Carson, and I would also put that as a low for Caleb as well. Man, my character, Hudson. Five highs, five lows. I just want to throw in, it's not really a high, because it's only a line of dialogue, but in episode 611, Arbitration, I had so much fun writing the line, only bested by my saying the line as Hudson, which started the proverbial feces making contact with the airflow machine. (laughs) (laughs) That was in, in reference to it being public knowledge. Hey, did you know Bella and Pedro slept with each other? But, okay. Let's start with the lows. I'm going to start with the lows for the character. Low, public shouting match with Caleb at the gas station that only made him look like, as man bluntly and succinctly put it, a jackass, which we talked about before. He was also the dismissive of the termination of Riley and Gary's relationship, knowing how it would be depressing his stepsister's mood when he said in episode 605 conversions, I don't know who to feel more relief for, Gary or Riley. And even though it's, uh, yes, they're better off, not being together at that moment, they're both not better off. They're dealing with the fallout from that. They're trying to put the pieces back together. And I don't know why you'd be there emotionally supportive for Gary, even though he's somehow still your lawyer, but to not really even show if he's even considering Riley's feelings, you know, his own stepsister, which as we also alluded to, he also became her guardian for the better part of a year, like her legal parent, as well, after their parents died, adoptive parents and Riley's biological parents, is just kind of out there. It's really cold. That's the, oh, there's Hudson from seasons one, two, and three. He also, speaking of, has that loud public shouting match with Riley in episode 607, Separation, which he invited, by the way, because he sought her out. He's like, oh, there you are. Like, he went there for an argument. There's no question about that. And it ultimately derails any meaningful reconciliation between them takes two. You know, it's not the pity party, look at how Hudson treated me. Riley's guilty too, but Hudson sought that confrontation out. You know, he started off well by saying, if Gary broke up with you, I'll make that heartless bastard regret it for all his days, limited in numbers they probably are. But he, he brings up a lot of stuff from the past. Everything from, once again, talking about how unhappy he is that Riley had introduced him to Caden. He reacted dismissively, even when Riley offers him a compliment, and he tells Riley what to do, where, 
even if she agreed is partially beyond her control or moreover not of his business. He says, you know, you need to stop Caleb from seeing Carson and tell him what his brother said to Nora. Mm, no. And you, you wonder why Riley doesn't want to have anything to do with you because you're busy telling her what to do. You're talking at her, not to her. If we set aside that in episode 607, continuing on on the lows, there's three there. Fourth, he continues to bicker with Riley, even when there is a more important matter at stake involving others and himself, and he knows it. And uh, This is from episode 611, Arbitration. Riley tells him, your commentary wasn't asked for, Bay, and it wasn't wanted. Hudson, mm, that tells you all you need to know why I supplied it. Because you knew Riley didn't want it. Or, Riley's like, do you have any idea what she's talking about? He's talking about Reese in this situation. And Hudson's like, I wish I did so that I could withhold that information from you. It is to your benefit, Hudson, and Riley, even though she has no vote, but she has standing. You need to know what it is that's being talked about here, that Hudson, you're part of this family, and Riley is too. You should be wanting to share information with each other so that you're collectively in a better position. But Hudson's like, no, it's me versus Reese versus Riley. And also Caleb's here. <laughs> and by the way, speaking of low, he convinces Caleb to help in the making of the video for Riley's birthday, except he ultimately blackmails. First, he coerces him to do so. You know, he says, you know, you really should know when your boss's birthdays are. Riley's one of your bosses, but we don't need to know when your birthday is. It's in your best interest to keep both of your bosses happy. Want to keep your job? It's like, wow. Not cool, dude. Not cool. Calibium points out, fine, I'll do this, even though this is beyond the scope of my employment. But that doesn't matter. Hudson still sticks to it. And he knows that Riley rejected him hard again and again and again. He does, however, on the positive side, he does confront Caden and Reese about their resurrecting the conflict over the Doe contract in episode 612 abort with the question that everyone asks, should ask, why? He gives away, and you alluded to this, Canis, Hudson gives away a considerable amount of personal and professional power by instantaneously dismantling that caste system of the family that gave it to him, which included the consideration of Caden not liking the system too and observing how Reese will handle having her life, quote-unquote, meddled with, having meddled in that of others for so long. I thought it was a very poignant point. That, that was really something that Reese needed to hear, and exactly how Reese operates. She loves meddling in the affairs of others. Episode 615, point taken. Hudson pushes for Riley to be welcomed into the family that he and Caden are a part of openly. Despite objections by Reese, and presumably there's at least hesitations by other cousins and family members, and I say that presumably because as soon as Hudson dismantles it, the family puts it back together. Hudson dissolved it. Well, we'll just legally create it again, you know, and, and you know, we're back after a day. Only Reese is no longer involved, as well as Caden and obviously Hudson. He convinces Caden to participate in the making of a birthday message video to cheer Riley up even if he ended up laying responsibility for putting the idea into practice with him, because when Caden goes to take the phone call, that's from Riley, interestingly enough, Hudson says, let me know what your ideas are for the video. And Caden's like, but the video was your idea. Oh, sure, whatever. And I think when you were talking about Hudson as well, Candace, were you alluding to that about him wanting to make that birthday message video for Riley? Like he wasn't just thinking about himself? Yeah, partially. Partially? The dissolving of the company business thing was also part of that. We also find out that in episode 619 that Hudson is accompanying Caden's parents, again, the biological parents to both of them, 
to Caden's burial. And I think it's reasonably inferred that it was Hudson's idea and initiative to do so. As much as Hudson said earlier in the season, you know, I'm their child. They should damn well introduce themselves to me. The fact that he's accompanying Caden's parents, you know, his biological parents, I don't think at that point Caden's parents would be reaching out to Hudson. They got enough to deal with. But I think that if Hudson presented himself like, I know you know who I am, like I'm here to help. This is about Caden. Struck me as a very selfless act. You could say, well, it's helping give Hudson himself closure. Yeah, but he didn't have to have anything to do with the parents. He could have just shown up and stood in the background and not even really introduced himself. I thought that that was also a further note, and I, I wanted that to be in there because I thought that was a reasonable progression of his character growth throughout the season, that it was believable, but also in and of itself tragic that it took this event for Hudson to take that step, even though Caden had said, or even in season five, I'll introduce you, I'll, I'll make the arrangements. And Hudson's like, you know what, I'll do it myself. Even though Hudson had no intention of doing it, and even when Caden said earlier in the season, hmm. You haven't contacted uh, my parents. You know, you said you were going to. I talked to my parents, and they said they haven't heard from you. And Hudson's like, that, that's none of your business. I never said I was going to do it, and I'll back off. No, no, Riley couldn't possibly be Worf. No. Tasha? Oh, yeah. I could no. see her as chief security, yeah. No, no, that. no. Riley would be Troy. <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> so who's Q? You and Charlie Caleb. Caden. Pedro. <laughs> okay, yeah, that actually works. <laughs> Does that mean that Nora is Guinan in all of this? That would actually, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, I see that, yeah. What about Dr. Crusher? Yeah, but Dr. Crusher is way less of a, you know, psychologist kind of a thing. It's totally a Guinan. Season 3 Dr. Crusher. Not season 1 Dr. Crusher. Definitely not the season 2 Doctor. Ugh. More importantly, oh. who's hard? You know, I'm glad that I'm not the oh. only one Carson? It was terrible. Well, Gary's old enough, but he's not saying much of anything. <laughs> I we're all putting Hudson as Riker than Hayden. Oh, Hudson's so Riker. <laughs> <laughs> what did? I wish he was Riker. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Guys, step over the back of a chair. It all makes sense that we're talking about this and said in Star Trek The Next Generation because we've previously discussed about Caden being Data. Yeah. Yeah. So it only stands to reason that we f- talk about the rest. The highs and lows for plot developments this season. Why don't I start? But the question is, where am I going to start? The first high I have on the list, Gary breaking up with Riley. Finally. Oh my gosh, they were so wrong for each other. Episode 6-1, disconnect. Agree. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> uh, agree. That was a mistake from the start. Yeah. To quote from the episode, Gary, you hooked me into this relationship. Riley, you stayed. Gary, you started. We continued. I ended. The second high on the list, Gary getting closure with his relationship to this point with Bella. Episode 602. A quote from the episode. Gary, Bella, I didn't raise you to be a homewrecker. To which Bella replies, you did raise me to involve yourself with other people to suit your needs. But, again, Gary gets closure. Even though Bella and Avery send him a text, we need you to come to our office immediately. Gary's like, oh, well, you know, it can't be any worse than this. 
He finally gets to talk to Bella. He gets to say his piece, and he leaves the conversation physically and otherwise on his own terms. Like He's just like, I'm done talking to both of you, and in particular, Bella. I think that was a high for Gary and for the plot itself. Good. You guys are done. I don't know. I just hate to see families that badly ripped apart, but at the same time, sometimes you just got to deal with toxic people the right way. Yeah, I agree. As for plot, it's pretty important. Here's a, a question, kind of springboarding off of something you just said, Candace, about the toxic relationship and toxic members of a family. Do you think that they're both toxic in their own way, more or less equal? Or was one worse than the other? Or was one person toxic and the other not? I would say Gary is worse because Bella didn't become toxic from nowhere. I think a very strong argument to support that is, as is pointed out in episode 619, when Gary tells Evelyn, you know, I didn't bet on having to raise our daughter on my own. So Bella is very much a product of Gary as opposed to Evelyn, other than the fact that Bella's a product of Evelyn not being around. Mm. Both are equally bad. Yeah. Speaking of the toxic relationship, at one point, Bella says, I'm starting to sense that this is what being in hell must be like in terms of trying to deal with what Avery's saying and what Gary's saying. And Avery says, rest assured, addressing Gary and Bella, rest assured you're both horrible people. And Avery herself is a horrible person, so she should recognize her kin. I think it says a lot that Avery, being as awful as she is, thinks they're worse than she is. And she's the one to point it out. Yeah. Ouch. That, I think, is a high point, actually. (laughs) That single line. (laughs) Because it makes you realize that as bad as Avery is, and she's a real cold bitch, those two are worse, and and she knows it. I don't know. I guess maybe I, I, I view high in a different definition because you're picking what are essentially kind of sad moments. Realizing that people need to not be together is just never really a happy thing. My criteria is character development high points as opposed to life yeah. high points because nothing good happens in this show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm optimistic that someday they will not be such awful people, but who knows? It's too soon. <laughs> it's 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 really hard to know because they didn't really show any real change. They just made a decision to try and change. So we didn't see any progress. Right. The, the hope to change and the want to try to change would be the start to someone being successful in that. That is fair. I think Max and Nora are continuing to be their same old selves again. Episode 603, I hope neither you, Canis, or you, Scott, feel like Max and Nora are headed to divorce. I don't think so. Okay, good. There are so many examples. So I'll just highlight episode 603 on a dime. Nora says, you're still here. Thank goodness for that. Now I'm going to kill you. It's all right, dear. I know you didn't mean that. Let's uh, not challenge what you actually do and do not know for one day. Or, actually, my favorite, Nora, I think our friends have seen enough of our ugly sides for a long while. Okay, quote-unquote, that sentence is an allusion to the audience members, I would say, in particular, those of us on the show who said they thought they were headed for divorce, because I never even thought of that until we recorded that season commentary. And, you know, we're not just performers on the show, we're also listeners, but I think other listeners also probably thought the same thing. So then Nora says, now, where are our children going to go if we die before they turn 18. Max, with us? Oh, jeez. You know, and Nora's like, Max! And 
Max is not being serious, and he knows it's a serious conversation, but this is how Max is dealing with that. You know, he's trying to lighten the mood, and Nora's like, can you not? That kind of back and forth, which if you take it literally, is you are really dysfunctional, perhaps borderline awful people, but that's just the way they've always related to each other, and it works for them. Not necessarily going to work for anybody else, or even everybody else. You think their relationship is strong in this season? You think their relationship is stronger now that they have Mora and Nax? Or at the very least, not any less than it was before the children were born? Yeah, I think they have always presented as a pretty strong couple. I always liked their interactions before, and I always thought that they were a good foil for each other. So I think this would just make their relationship stronger. I think they're doing fine, uh, mostly because they've been through all the crap they've been through, and they're still going through a lot of crap, and they still obviously love each other. So it makes it very unlikely that they are not in a good place. Although it would be hard to say because the mother-in-law is still around. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. The mother-in-law is not mentioned in this season, but I do remember from previous season that Initially, Nora is really happy to have her mother involved, and Max is not. And then there's a complete 180 as mother-in-law carries out her assistance. Yeah. So, although I didn't say she is involved, I didn't say she's not involved, and the last we heard that she was involved, so yes, she is still around. In my head, she is still around. The question isn't asked, and it certainly isn't answered, so are... Nora and Max on board with her still being there? Or do they want her out and she's just dug in her heels and I'm not leaving? At the very least, the fact that the mother-in-law is still involved is not pushing them towards fighting. So, at the very least, she's a zero. She's not a negative, so there's that. But it it might just simply be, as long as the mother-in-law is here, at least we still outnumber the children. Yes. (laughs) Nora on top of the one-liners. Very similar to Max, like Candice, you mentioned when Max got upset. That was just so out of character for him. Even though it was the stuff that he said was truthful and hilarious and over the top, it was one of those wow moments. It's hard to believe. Nora having those one-liners, saying those very decisive, almost cut-wrote, take you down to an inch in height, what people needed to hear in the moment is not something that the Nora we first saw in season one would do. My favorite, when Bella arrives, unannounced, unexpected, to their home, and Bella is like, Max, Nora, what a pleasure to find both of you here on this blessed afternoon, even though, like, where else would they probably be? And Nora says, I thought so too, but now I know it's cursed. I knew the moment you walked in. To what do we owe the discomfort of your visit today? That, to what do we owe the discomfort of your visit today, that would just be truthfulness and advertising for some businesses. You know, you walk into a store and they're just... The person is just done with being pleasant. They just want to get their shift over with. To what do we owe the discomfort of your visit today is sometimes how I think we as customers feel in some stores. I think they were trying to ensure that we didn't have a good experience. As a salesperson, I know that feeling. (laughs) I think it makes sense. Yeah, one-liner comedy. You got to balance drama with comedy, so that's definitely a high. Is it the fact that it's from Nora, as compared to some other characters, make it a more notable high than if I gave it to somebody like, oh, I don't know, Riley? Nice change of pace, yeah. 
in my view, it doesn't affect the character development that much because Nora has always been witty, if not vicious. But since Max is clearly having some kind of issues during that, Nora would be easily able to pick up the slack. Another high. <laughs> this is going to sound awkward in the beginning. Caden blackmailing Reese. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dan, how is that blackmailing a high? And I'm like, well, hear me out. Remember, this is Caleb blackmailing Reese. First off, it's Reese. But more, more specifically, Caleb blackmails Reese into informing Hudson of their familiar connection and in turn placing Hudson at the head of their family's business because he is fed up with how Reese continues to pursue Doe contract ramifications and how she treats him. Reese, you're about to suggest a course of action. This should be good for a laugh. Caden's response, I sincerely doubt you will find anything comedic in what I'm about to insist upon. Reese is essentially the master of Caden. You are there to do as you are told. You have no opinion you are not to express. Even though it's not said, I kind of have this view as Caden shouldn't even make eye contact with Reese because Reese is up here and Caden's down there. And now this is back talk. But it goes farther than just backtalk. It's not just, I don't want this to continue. If you don't do this, then we're going to have serious problems because there are lots of things that I know that you don't want other people to know. And the fact that the episode was called Implications was very much centered around Caden's actions here. I think this was a high. I think this was a considerable turning point for a lot of people on this show. Agree. I see what you're getting there. Yeah, yeah I won't argue it. Next tie. Though he fails, Caden attempts to mediate Hudson and Reese's dispute over how to proceed or not with respect to the Doe contract ramifications. Episode 608, turn around. Reese points out that you might be the head of the family now, Hudson, but you're going to need my support. Caden knows it. So he tries to, okay, Reese, you know me. Hudson, you know me to some degree. I'm trying to get you to, again, to see how to proceed or not to proceed, or at least just not do anything right now. He's not successful, but Caden tries. And that's a couple of episodes later in episode 608 turnaround. He's trying to get, you know, like Hudson and Reese are my family. Hudson's newfound family, Reese's longtime family. I need to get Hudson and Reese to regard each other as family. He tries. I actually don't have an opinion on that one. I think it could go either way. Okay, so it could be a high, it could be a low. Or it could just be a, uh, a average. Yeah, average. Average canceling out? Yeah. I also put on my high list, Nora putting Avery in her place. Episode 610, Mediation. What am I talking about? I'm talking about specifically two parts of two different lines in that episode. We've got Nora saying, You want to use my misfortune and that of my family to bring in your ex-partner of a personal kind here, so reference to Caden, to stick it to your current partner of a professional kind, Bella. Our fates, so mine, Max's, and my children, our fates are no longer bound by whatever happens with this proposal from hell. Time to get over yourself. I was like, wow, because Avery comes in and it's like, okay, I want your involvement in getting back at Bella. And it's like, we're out. We're done. You and your partner are no longer going to dictate terms. Almost, I almost kind of feel it in a way that Nora feels, not financially, of course, but otherwise liberated by Bella calling in the mortgage on their property. Now that that's happened to us, you want to turn around and you know, have us involved in the reaction to this? Nope. Goodbye. Nora says no. We'll find a different path. 
I thought that was a high because Avery was very self-assured that Nora was going to be on board with whatever this was to get back at Bella because Bella's the one that foreclosed. Even though Nora and Max very well know, you know, well, you could have reversed it, but you didn't. And now you're making out like you're going to be doing us a favor by saying, hey, want to be part of our plan? I don't think so. I think that's a high. Yeah, I, I like that. Actually, I do remember that, and I do like that she put Avery in her place, because I think I remember that character being particularly vicious, so yeah, that was good. I would say that any time Avery gets told off is a good time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, at one point, Nora slaps Avery. This is in episode 613, Turnabout. To which Nora replies, knowing you probably got some perverse pleasure out of that, but either way, it was a long time coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Another high, episode 612, abort. The end of Reese, Caden, and now Hudson's family system by Hudson using his power as its head to end it. It's like here, you've got all of this personal and professional power to really impact for your benefit to the detriment of anybody and everybody else you want in the court of public opinion, certainly, maybe even in the court of law to influence things happening. What are you going to do with that power? Um, I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm going to take an action where not only am I not accepting the power, but I'm going to ensure that no one else can either. He hears all of this, and he makes the decision in the moment. Like, nope, I don't want it. And I feel like, on a personal level as well, and I mentioned it, that it was a high for Hudson. Because I kind of feel like if that was season one, two, or three Hudson, he totally would have been all over that. But now, it's like, nope. And because he made that decision, in terms of plot developments, it was a high. Because it also had significant ramifications for so many people. I think so. Yeah. I can hear some, perhaps, people listening to this commentary and saying, but Dan, you've actually pointed out in this commentary, and it's pointed out on the show, how the rest of the family just go ahead and reincorporates. Yeah, it might be the same on paper, but it's not the same in reality. They're trying to operate the same way is going to be severely handicapped because these other characters and other people in the community know, oh, you put someone at the head of the company and then they just destroyed the company? And you're just going to operate the same way you already have before, so history's going to repeat itself? Yeah, they are severely undermined. As part of the substantial rewrite in episode 6, 619, having Reese join with Avery, I just had this vision of Avery and Reese trying to set the rest of one more turn people on fire. Maybe not literally, but their lives on fire. Like, it's just, it's just scorched earth at this point. Just pure rage. I feel like they're too busy beating on each other. Other high, the what I expect was an unexpected introduction to Evelyn, Bella's mother and Gary's ex-partner. Introduced in episode 616, Shifting Tides, and also her adversarial nature, I think, was a high in episode 619. Nora's like, the way I've heard Bella Gary even talk about you, you're... Evelyn's like, dead? Worse even? Their coping mechanism, not surprising. I did walk out on them. To you, Canis, and to you, Scott, were you surprised to see, oh, not only is Bella's mother and Gary's ex being named in the series, but she's actually here as a player now? No. I was really excited, and then I found out the series was ending. Oh. It was nice to get that conclusion, yes. There was Evelyn's, you know, I was not informed that she would be here as well. This is, again, in reference to Bella 
inviting both of them to the same place at the same time, but not knowing about the other person because Bella knew that one or both of them would probably say no. I was on told I was going to have to finish raising your daughter on my own. Touche. There's Evelyn's comment to Bella about, are you sure you've selected the right sibling this time? In reference to the you-know-who brothers and Bella choosing Carson, not Caleb. But when Evelyn starts to say, in this scene, I fail to see, and Bella jumps in, your failure to see a lot of things surprises no one who ever cared about you. As I wrote that, like, it broke my heart a little. It's Bella the adult, but really, to me, that's Bella the girl talking there. As cold as Bella is towards Evelyn, and understandably so, deep inside, all that Bella wants to do is ball her eyes out and really get some answers about why. The series does not get to why did Evelyn leave. Why did Evelyn leave not just Gary, but also Bella behind, too? Yeah, it's a pretty strong moment. Max and Nora moving on. Max becoming an online content creator. This was really a, I've only got room in the script for it to be referenced what Max is doing. I'm thinking, what is Max doing if he's no longer singeing off hair on people with lasers? Oh, he's going to be an online content creator. But that was less to do with the laser hair removal business and more the fact that he was a gamer and in leaks. And so, okay, he knows something about computers Okay, I know it's a pretty seemingly low bar in terms of barrier to entry, and also online content creator is incredibly vague, and that was very purposeful. And this is how he's going to support his family, which is kind of a little cringy, you think. Hmm. (sighs) A lot of people try, a few people succeed, it seems. But also, and perhaps more meaningfully, financially as well as even character development, that Nora's going back to school to becoming a psychologist. That was actually first talked about in episode 614 realignment where Nora alluding to everything that has happened in the series referring to everything that has happened to her and her family in the series as quote-unquote relevant experience to become a psychologist I really think Nora a lot of times not just in this season but in seasons past was kind of a de facto psychologist for a lot of people in her orbit Max included definitely I feel like she would be a good one too because she's like oh well here's how we fix this I got three more highs. Riley is moving on too, yet she and Caleb are looking to build some kind of mutual functional relationship. Episode 619, I found myself surprised even writing this. Caleb mentions Riley has moved to the city to take a job as a blogging assistant at a new startup, which here is an aside, given what she was doing with a blogging company of her own, Fortuna Works, I thought, okay, that's that's believable. Plus, moving to the city to get away from all of this crap because she is just clearly a mess, okay. But then Caleb's like, we, so Riley and I are going to have coffee because we found common ground in comparing daddy issues. Which is, well, such a loaded statement in and of itself. But it's almost kind of like, wait, what? You're going to talk to each other as at least acquaintances, maybe even friends? I mean, admittedly, it's finding common ground and things that you have in common that are unpleasant, but Almost more kind of surprising from Caleb's perspective. It's really, you're willing to be in the same room with her and to talk to her? I think there's some character growth for both of them there. And character growth is important for Caleb and desperately wanting for Riley. I think they'll be good for each other. Now that they're taking out the romantic overture? Yeah, now that they're not doing that. As much as it would have been fun to see them date, It would have been as big a disaster as anybody else Riley has ever dated. (laughs) Riley does seem to be surrounded by lots of dysfunction. Hudson, now Gary, 
up to this point anyway, Caleb. Even her relationship with Nora was pretty rocky on and off, and it really started to go down. If you remember when Nora was, you know, in the hospital about to give birth, and Nora throws Riley out because Riley's making it about her. The relationship that Riley had with Nora really never recovered, was really never as close after that happened. I mean, part of that was Nora prioritizing her family, of course, but it's I think Nora was like, okay, Riley, I'm starting to see your true colors, and maybe even, she probably even thought, oh, I can, starting to agree a little bit with Hudson why he distances himself from you, which no doubt caused her even greater pain. <laughs> and speaking of Caleb, yes, and I alluded to this as well, he's getting support for his gambling, while Carson continues to get support for his drinking, as talked about in episode 619. And last but not least, and I also alluded to this, but this is a high, hey, Pedro's no longer a taxi driver, he's now driving for Rebu. Yeah... I don't find that believable at all. Really? Why is that? Because why would he give up a taxi job that pays better? The last that we heard was that he, that he had actually leased his license to somebody else, which in the license also included his taxi. But now he's driving for Rebu, so it does beg the question, is he still leasing the license to somebody else? Did he actually sell it? Is this the car that he was driving as a taxi, or is this a different vehicle now. But Pedro started off as a taxi driver. He went through this working for Acme Smith. And I think there's also now the question of, is this what he's doing full time? Or is he just doing this on the side? Like, is he still working otherwise in the industry or something else? Because there are, and of course, for people listening, yes, Rebu is Uber backwards. People who drive for Uber and other ride sharing programs, that's not always what the only thing they're doing to support themselves. It may be very a small part of it. So... Yeah, definitely I can see someone saying, I don't think it's believable. I think I make it just believable enough, if for no other reason, that I don't give you a lot of substantive information behind it. Alright, so, low high. Max and Nora are looking out for their children by trying to make up for the mortgage money lost when their building is foreclosed on, through no fault of their own, but... And I talked about this as well, but they do exploit Caleb's gambling addiction to do so, and they look to partner up with Avery to make it possible in episode 613, Turnabout, and I think, look, I understand you wanting to look out for your kids, and having that mortgage money lost when the building is foreclosed on you, like, you got screwed over, but again, you're dealing with a character who is either screw or be screwed, so do you really want to be on the side of Avery when she does that? Aren't you just better off just avoiding her altogether, which they eventually get to, but oh, I'm like, Max and Nora, this was the road to hell was paved with good intentions. That's definitely something that didn't seem like it was in character for either of them. Because I didn't feel like either of them were quite that nefarious. I feel it as, as they're reacting. It's, oh my gosh, we need this money. We've lost so much money. And yet money can definitely be a sticking point in relationships what can we do? Who do we know? What do they do? Oh, Max knows about gaming. He's in that industry. Who else is in that industry? Oh, Caleb's also in that industry. Who do we know that's got lots of money? Oh, oh, Avery's also got lots of money. And she's not the one that foreclosed on the business. That, as again, they're just reacting and they're grasping and they're trying to put something together and they are not thinking about what this means potentially long-term. Even though their children are, of course, quite long-term. Well, I'd hope so. The low high. And it might seem odd that I call this a low and high, and that's the death of Caden. It's the result of a seeming tragic accident, and yes, it is completely left up to the audience. Who was at fault, if anyone? I think there's some inference that Caden was not paying attention because he's talking on his cell phone at the time, 
and that's certainly, you know, distraction by cell phone, whether it's on the phone, texting, whatever on these devices is a very present social issue. And I had that in my mind, but there was never any confirmation that it was Caden's fault and Holer and Park, because that's not the point. Caden's gone. Yet, this death seems to bring out Hudson again, finally connecting with their shared biological parents. And yeah, Bella initiating contact with Gary as well as Evelyn to bring all three together to bring out some sort of resolution to the relationships between the respective pairs and all three of them. I, you know, I, Bella essentially said to her mom and dad, so thanks for both of you for showing me how not to be in a relationship with someone. Why don't you two try to grow up on your own terms? I've got my own life and my own family now. See you later. And that's in giant quotation marks. I don't think she really... I mean, she even whispers to Carson, you're going to lose their RSVPs in the junk folder. Like, There's absolutely no way <laughs> I want them anywhere near me, or Caleb for that matter. No. Bella asking Carson for a second chance, and he agreed, to the point of them getting engaged to be married. I mean, first off, yay, Carson return. That was never, never a plan. And when I first wrote episode 619... And I got looking over stuff that had happened in the past and looking at Bella's relationship history, which was Caleb and Carson and Hudson and Caleb and Hudson and Carson. And it's just like round and round and round we go. And finally, finally, hopefully it's as good for Carson as it seemingly is for Bella that they get together. Right? Because we look at the end of the series, but before that it was, so who's in a good relationship right now? Who's in a relationship that's either happy or seemingly happy? At the beginning of the series, it was Max and Nora. At the end of the series, it's Max and Nora. Sounds about right. But I thought, you know, I think the Bella and Carson thing is believable. I mean, we don't know if they actually do get married, and if they do, how happy they are and how long the marriage lasts. But I, at least I thought it was plausible, and honestly, I, I just like I just like the feel good. And I'm like, yes, this is a this is a seeming victory for love. The unholy alliance between Avery and Bella is broken, with Bella selling her stake to Reese, which kind of begs also the question, can Bella just sell her stake to anybody? Did Avery have any say in that? Regardless, and I hadn't decided that in my mind, I mean, knowing that Bella is the lawyer, I could very much see that she somehow worked that wording into the contract, that she could sell it to whoever she wanted. And Bella selling it to Reese is just kind of a, by the way, Avery, yeah. Screw you? Screw you or screw me? Yeah, no, screw you. <sighs> and lastly, in the low high, speaking of selling stakes, Riley is just doing the same with Caleb, but over time. It's Caleb comes back to One More Turn Solutions. One More Turn Solutions was started by Carson. Carson brought in Caleb. Then Carson brings in Hudson. Carson goes away. Hudson brings in Riley. Riley brings in Caleb. Talk about musical chairs of ownership with One More Turn. And I know, Scott, you said that and the, and the legal stuff, that that was just like, oh my gosh, no. At least for myself, when I start looking at who these people are, like who the actual ownership chain was and how those pieces came about, the fact that it's now Hudson and Caleb working as equals, not Hudson and Caleb employee, but Hudson and Caleb partner, I don't think it's to be as a cool relationship as we had joked about in earlier commentaries about, you know, Caleb and Pedro. But I don't know. Hudson and Caleb might work well together. They seem to have that level of snark that has kind of a begrudging respect between both of them. They just might be able to make a go of this and make One More Turn Solutions the best version of itself. I certainly hope so. <laughs> ah, Lowe's. 
no resolution for certain characters, is particularly between the brothers, Caleb and Carson. Because, I mean, there was this whole Carson just suddenly leaves and everybody's in the lurch, and then he just kind of shows up at the end. And it just, I don't know if it really resolves in the best way that's satisfying. He's just sort of there. It does seem like that Carson has really just shown up to say, well, Bella came to where I live out west and asked me to give her another chance. I said yes. I'm coming back to tell all of you. You're all invited to our wedding. We are super happy. Peace out. Carson, yes, he facilitates some other information. He finds out what other people are going on with. But you're right. He and Caleb, they're still not really talking to each other. In my mind, there really is no relationship left between them. They're not actively involved in each other's lives. They're not going to go out of their way to ignore each other, but neither one of them are willing to make that step of, hey, let's get together and talk about something real, something substantive, which is a shame. I agree that that's, that's a low. And for a relationship that was very much central to the show in the first four seasons, it does sting, I think, a little bit. That that's lost, that that's, if not gone, very lost, it's very distant, and there are so many steps to try to get back to it, it just seems not realistic. Yeah. Bella calling in the mortgage on Max and Nora's townhouse because she got pushback for her insults to both of them, by both of them, and she went to them to find out if they were planning on moving back into the townhouse itself. Uh, Low. Caleb being overly sensitive about his stalled relationship with Carson even when others are talking about somebody else. Like, Nora was not talking about Carson, but Caleb is going on and on and on about how things aren't working with Carson, yet, as Scott, you have pointed out more than once, the two of them are not talking to each other. I would say to Caleb and Carson, but in particular Caleb, we don't know what Carson's talking about, Caleb, but I would say to Caleb, look, either talk to Carson or shut up about it. Honestly. The auditing of One More Turn Solutions only being mentioned once after its introduction, and even then it's not resolving it. That's when Caden made a comment to Hudson about, oh, I hope the audit's going all right. I hope there's nothing really bad. And Hudson's like, like, you care. I guess you can infer it was fine. There was nothing major that happened because Riley was ultimately able to sell her stake over time to Caleb. But still, huh? Where did that come from? Let alone where is that supposed to go? Hudson and Riley are unable or more likely unwilling to mend their relationship, even again, even though they both acknowledge their own mistakes. I will quote one part from that episode. Riley, I resent that you never valued my opinion enough to want to ask. Hudson, I despise that you try to find a way to make every and every aspect of my life about you. Riley, I loathe how you look to find a way to make each and every situation benefit you. And you know what, Hudson? You know what, Riley? You're both right. Congratulations. Ugh. Avery belittles Caleb over their past history and exploiting his feelings for Riley and Max and Nora while trying to elicit his help in the present over trying to get back at Bella for doing something without her, however not needed, which of course now makes her look weak. What do you mean Bella foreclosed on their mortgage? That wasn't part of the plan. Reese looking to ally herself with Avery and Bella in order to get back at Caden? Like, why would Avery and Bella do that? Reese has spent all of this time to bring down people over the Doe contract, which would have implications for Bella and Avery in turn, because Avery is now Bella's partner. And in addition, Reese wants to get back at Caden. Avery was in a personal relationship with Caden. Again, I don't think Avery felt for Caden anywhere near what Caden felt for Avery, but still, like, what's in it for us? Except, hmm, pain. Bella getting bested by Avery 
again. Oh, Bella, Bella, Bella. Uh, talked about that already. That was from episode 614, Realignment. So it was uh, Reese looking to ally herself. And episode 617, Pressure Points. Hudson convinces Caleb in the helping of making the video for Riley. Lastly, the low is that Reese, Caden, and Hudson's biological family reincorporated their media business. And I know both of you, I would say in particular you, Scott, are just like, oh, the Doe contract. Oh, I don't miss that. You're right. A line from Carson was, should we be worried that Reese's family is still pursuing legal action over Doe? To which Bella replies, the fact that you're asking that question is all the answer I think you need, darling. It's after all that what happened to Reese's family and their business enterprise, they're still doing the exact same thing they were doing before that ultimately led to the end of that company. But they're starting again, and it's like, no, we're still pursuing legal action over Doe. And so there is still cause for concern. And I left that in there as a possible, oh, if there was a season seven or some equivalent in the future, the Doe contract could still be referenced to, could still be, quote unquote, a thing. Ugh. <laughs> and I'm not saying I would, but yeah, I left that in there. It's like, oh my gosh, the Doe contract is like the cockroach. You know, it will not die. You know, it's been almost two years since we recorded episodes 601 to 613. Yeah, well, somebody had to go get married, so... Yeah, and engaged and married and honeymoon and adopt a puppy and, you know, just a few things. Did season six meet, exceed, or fall short of your expectations and why? Based on what has already been said, and this is looking at the entirety of season six... Canis, is it a fair summary to say that season six falls short of your expectations? Yeah. I mean, there are so many things that didn't get resolved, but sounds like some of that was intentional, which is understandable. But I personally, in a series finale, like to see more things work together and less enterprise ending. Scott, season six meet, exceed or fall short of your expectations? Uh, it failed to meet certain expectations, but met others. So I, I do feel like I got an ending, maybe not quite the one that I was hoping for. So it is kind of in the middle. All right. Well, so there are three possible answers for this. We've got three people on the panel. You heard the fall short. You've heard the met. And now you're briefly going to hear the exceed. Season six exceeded my expectations. Why? Tying together plot points from previous and the current seasons together, admittedly as a side, but not all, but I felt a lot of the major ones were put together and there was some form of resolution. And indeed, the series by the end establishes believable and meaningful next steps for all of the characters, either in the last episode or by we got to the last episode. Again, not necessarily resolution on the plot developments or necessarily those next steps, Again, referring back to Doe contract as a prime example. What do you hope the audience's takeaways are from this season? Scott? Uh, that they enjoyed it, I guess. <laughs> and that, um, I don't know. Life is fleeting. Don't be a dick. Cass? <laughs> <laughs> My most common thought is, well, hopefully people see this and decide, you know what, let's never, ever, ever be like these people. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And then my second thought is, it's not really my story, so I don't really have an opinion about what other people think about it other than I hope that they enjoyed listening to it, and I hope that they enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. And to springboard off of that, my own hopes for the audience's takeaways from this season, that its plot points and character developments were satisfying and not always predictable, and also that its conclusion adequately addresses all meaningful events while leaving room to explore more in the future. I kind of alluded to that already, and more on that in the series commentary. Lastly, what is your one wish for the character you voice or a character beyond? And I had to say beyond One More Turn Season 6. I couldn't say for One More Turn Season 7 because there isn't. So I had to change the wording for this one as compared to the previous seasons. I'll start. Hudson. I was the voice for Hudson, as we know. Dear Hudson, if you're prepared to establish and presumably build a relationship with your birth parents, reestablish a line of communication with Riley to lay the groundwork for some kind of relationship with her. And why do I say that? The way that you have left it right now, it's not that you're not interested in family and you're going to try to make family from new people, people that are not connected to you by blood or by past, because clearly you are by connecting with birth parents. So don't exclude Riley from this. At the very least, be the better person. Take that first step. You're the elder brother. Show that and show that maturity. Scott, what would your one wish for Carson be beyond One More Turn Season 6? I'm actually going to start with a very specific question, also related to the one wish. When you found out that your character got engaged to Bella to be married, were you thinking more yes or more oh no? More oh no, but I mean, (laughs) maybe they'll grow together and be better with each other than they were with other people. That was not a coupling that I saw really coming. I would hope that somehow he would make this relationship work and fix his relationship with his brother, but I I just don't know. Lastly to you, Candice, is there one wish for a character beyond Season 6 of One More Turn that you have? I hope that man finds a calling so that he doesn't have to keep switching jobs. <laughs> I do appreciate everyone who was involved in helping make this little world of mine a reality, bringing life to it. Aww. It's been it's fun, nice Canada. It's been fun. Oh, it's been quite. Wow, I don't know if I'd go so far with that sound effect, but... (laughs) No, I was thinking of something else, and then I realized, hey, wait a minute. Most of the characters did not know each other until the series started. I mean, you have the exceptions of Hudson and Riley being step-siblings. You had Gary and Bella, father and daughter. Of course, you had Max and Nora. But all of those people together, it's not like all of these people had been interacting for years and you're kind of jumping in and then they're making reference to things that happened in the past. Yes, I had to do a lot of that in order for certain actions to make sense. But I always wanted there to be throwbacks, but I wanted them to be meaningful throwbacks. So the Doe contract stuff, which we'll get to, comes up only because Reese. Reese is kind of the, she does not want to let the early seasons go. She really does not, and she Mm -hmm. wants there to be ramifications for that, which I think helps make her equally despised by everyone. And then in episode 607, actually, (laughs) 
But the Carson behaving badly video, the, the closest you get to is that little bit of tidbit about actually the message that Carson sent to Nora, his goodbye message. Mm-hmm. And Caleb wanting to know, like, what exactly did you say? What was exactly said? And we never do find out exactly what was said in either of those goodbye messages that Carson sent. And that was purposeful. Just like, what was Carson behaving badly about? You could fill that in for yourself. Yeah. I like to think I was already trying to get away from the specifics of that. And as time went on, Doe Contract was so integral in the first few seasons, especially season one. I felt I couldn't get away from it completely, but I wanted it to be less about the particulars. I still cringe at the able to buy two shares for every one sold or whatever it was at this point. I'm like, oh, that kind of minutia. I'm glad I was able to get away from it. I'm glad people like Canis and Scott and others were able to convince me of doing that. But actually, until you said the Carson behaving badly video right now, I thought, oh, yeah, I made no direct reference to that anymore. And maybe that's just a sign that it didn't need to have any kind of reference to it anymore. I think it was a good uh, bit. You you have them do something and you don't really show it and you leave it a mystery for people to have in their own mind. I think that's kind of fun to do. It worked for this. I thought about being specific about what it was, but then there's always the risk of one of our people in the audience saying, that's not behaving badly. So I just say behaving badly, you autofill that in and then people in the audience member agrees. Yeah, he behaved badly. That's bad. Well, I want to thank both Canis Albanus and Scott Alphashard Dirk for joining me on this season six commentary, the sixth and final season of this dramedy where geeks deal with non-geeky problems. If you are listening to these commentaries in order of their recording, there is one more to go where we're going to look at all six seasons together and ask similar but not exactly the same questions. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this evening and for being a part of the One More Turn family. Uh, pleasure to be here and pleasure to do the recording. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for including us all. Thank you again both and good night. Good night. Music by Kevin McLeod. Voiceover by Steve Warning you to Warner. Visit the One More Turn website at onemoreturn.net. Copyright Civilized Communications at civcom.net. One More Turn. <laughs>